Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, shall we? Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. You have said about your word that it is living, it is active, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It does what you want it to do. It is by your word that you created and brought all things into being. And it is by your word that you recreate us. And you fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. And you cause us to long for you and to search for you. And then you allow us to find you. So as your word goes forth this morning to instruct us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness, whatever is required, we pray that you would make application to each heart and just do what only you can do, Lord. We did not come here this morning to hear a man speak. We came to encounter our King and His Word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we return this week to our studies in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, Ephesians 4 begins the chapter with the word, therefore. It's the second word in English, and it's actually the second word in Greek. Now, whenever you see the word, therefore, in the Scriptures, you ought to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Because if Paul says that, or any other writer of the Scripture says that, that word, it's a key word because it's drawing a conclusion based on what he has just said. And what did Paul just say in the last little bit of chapter 3? Well, he's just told the Ephesian believers that he prays for them, and he has a specific prayer for them. He wants the Ephesians to know by direct experience about the love that Christ has for them. And he tells them that it is a love that is so broad and so long and so high and so deep that it cannot be fully known. It cannot be fully comprehended. Now, what does that mean? What did that mean for them, and what does that mean for you and I today? Well, it means at a fundamental level that if you are in Christ and belong to Him, if you have been truly born again, Christ is for you, and He actively desires your well-being, and you have come into a posture, into a relationship with Him where He is going to accomplish your well-being. And He's prepared to do all that is in His power to accomplish your well-being. And, and then Paul says, and let me tell you what the power is that's backing that play of God's here. What is His power? He said, Paul has this little doxology at the end of chapter 3. He says that God is able to do abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine according to His power that is at work, not out in the world, not in the universe, not in outer space, but in us. So God is powerfully working 
in us. He's able to do abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. And then he even talks about the believer being so blessed that he is filled with the fullness of God. Now that is really almost beyond imagining. That's one of those concepts that's so big we just kind of look at it and go, okay, I don't know what to do with that next. But it's amazing because the fullness of God. You can be full of God till God overflows out of you and blesses everybody around you and touches everybody around you and corrects people around you sometimes even. You can be full of the fullness of God. Now think about what that might be like. To know by experience, to know by direct experience how deeply you are loved. What would that be like? You know, that's something I've always kind of struggled with, to be honest with you. And I I can remember um, when it began to dawn on me. When uh, Evelyn was born, they said, come to the hospital right now. Your, your, Your child is being born. And we came and we got there just after she'd been born. And I had always worried, you know, what kind of a dad am I gonna be? Because I didn't have the best upbringing. Am I going to be able to love my child like I need to love my child? And even in the back of my mind, there was the idea that maybe, maybe God had kept Laura and I from having children because I was such a rotten human being that I was going to be a failure as a parent. And, and so all this comes to a head, and we get to the hospital in a snowstorm on February 15, 2006, and it's like way below zero. And I go into that that neonatal unit, and I looked down there at this little baby, and God just did something in my heart. And I knew I would die for her. I would, it wouldn't even hesitate, I would die for her. He just, he just put a love in there that was so, so profound. It wasn't too many months later, I was driving home from a presbytery meeting, and, and in uh, South Dakota, our, our, my presbytery was South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota, so it was a, I think it was in Minneapolis, so it was a 10-hour trip. And I'm driving back all alone, and I'm, I'm listening to some preaching by Sinclair Ferguson, and, and, and I got to this little valley in a place not too far from Rapid City uh, called Wasta, Washta, Lakota. It's the Lakota word for good, and it's this delightful little valley. The Cheyenne River runs through the, through the floor of it, and, and it's got trees, and it's got good grass for your horses, and a, it's always a little bit cooler than it is up in the higher country. And I, I went down in that valley. And as I went down in that valley, all of a sudden I realized, as much as I love Evelyn, God loves me that way only infinitely more. And I started crying at the bottom of that valley. And I didn't quit till I hit Sturgis 45 minutes later. I just began to know, I began to understand by sensation, by direct knowledge about the love of God. And one of the things that love does, says the Bible, is that perfect love casts out fear. And and that's what it says in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 18, which means then if you are perfectly loved by a being who is able to do abundantly more than all you could ask or imagine, then you don't have to have any fear about anything in the whole world. You don't have to be afraid of anything ever again. 
You don't have to be afraid of illness. You don't have to be afraid of old age. You don't have to be afraid of being alone. You don't have to be afraid of dying alone. I guarantee you that God is very, very carefully superintending his plans about your death and you will not be alone. And you will know that you're not alone. And I've seen a bunch of those. You don't have to fear poverty. You don't have to fear disease. You don't have to fear losing your worldly possessions. You don't have to fear rejection. You don't have to fear lack of money. You don't have to fear loneliness or suffering. You don't have to fear other people. And you don't have to fear that God is somehow going to fail you, that he's somehow not going to come through. And, and it's, if we're honest with ourselves, it's our fear that, that causes us to do almost all of the wrong things that we do. We think, well, I, I know what God says, and I know how he says my life ought to work and what I ought to do in this situation, but I just can't see how that would really work in the real world. So I can't do things God's way because it doesn't make sense to me, and it would require him to do something very supernatural, and I don't trust him to do that, and so he's going to fail to come through, so I need to take matters into my own hands, even if that means doing a little bit of evil or causing a little bit of damage to another person while I'm pursuing what I want, what I think I need my way rather than God's way. Well, all that vanishes when you really know the love of Christ. You see, when you really know the love of Christ, it will ultimately heal all of your inward sicknesses and all of your inward pain once you know it by experience. Now, do we come to know the love of Christ and the power of God automatically? Is that something that just happens to us infallibly in our Christian experience? No, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't just fall into our laps. Our experience teaches us that, and the Apostle Paul teaches us this as well because he felt it necessary to pray for these believers that they would have an experience that at least some of them apparently had not yet had or he wouldn't be praying for them to have it, if that makes sense. And so he felt it necessary to pray for them. But there's another side. We need, we need to pray for each other for that to happen to us. If, if you've got a, you're in a relationship with somebody, a marriage, or it's your child or your parent or whatever, and you can see all the problems that not really understanding the love and power of God are, is having in their lives, you need to pray for them. But, but the flip side of it is you also need to seek Him. And, uh, and, and this is one of those lessons that's been forgotten by the contemporary evangelical church. The, the whole of the Christian life is a life of seeking. Now, a lot of Christians think, well, I was born again, so I found him, so I don't need to seek him anymore. No, 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 no. That's an error. The whole of the Christian life is a life of constantly seeking God. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, somebody, somebody shared this with me this week, exactly when I was writing this sermon at this time, and it was just exactly perfect. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. That's not a one-time thing. That's a constant thing. You, you, if, you, if you're thirsty, you take a drink. You're not done drinking for the rest of your life. You're going to get thirsty again, and you're going to seek that water, that cool water. 
to quench your thirst. Well, when you get thirsty for God, you'll seek God. And you'll seek Him. And when you seek Him, He says you will find Him if you seek Him with your whole heart. There's another error that we modern Christians fall into, and that's that when we're told to seek God, and instead of actually seeking God Himself, we set out to accumulate more information about God. And it's important to have accurate information about God, but that's not the same thing as seeking and knowing God Himself. So don't fall into that trap either. What I need to do is have a Bible study. Well, no, Bible study is never going to hurt you. I'm never going to say don't have a Bible study, right? But what you need is not just a Bible study. You need to seek God himself. And sometimes that involves the reading of your Bibles, and sometimes it doesn't. But seek him. Seek him with your whole heart. Ask him to show you what he has for you, how he is oriented towards you, how he feels about you, what he's prepared to do for you. Seek God himself in a way that you can experience him and do so regularly and do so persistently. Now, these things are true, and truth has inevitable consequences. If this kind of love and this kind of power is available to you and God promises to care for you, then one of the conclusions that you must reach if you're being at all honest and at all actually believing what's been said is that this world then with Christ is a perfectly safe place for you and I to be. All of your needs will be met one way or another and nothing irredeemable can happen to you. And if the worst comes to worst and they kill you as they did the Nigerian Christians last Sunday. The Muslims came in and just shot up a a church, killed 50 people, I saw the photos. It was horrible. Worst comes to worst, what have they done? They've sent you home to Jesus. And all your problems are over, all your trials are done. It's rest and joy forevermore. So there's nothing that you need to be afraid of. You can relax then, you can be at peace, you can be confident in God's care. So that's all chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3. Therefore, says Paul, walk worthy. Walk worthy. Walk in a manner that is worthy of this high calling. Jesus called you to himself into this relationship of total sufficiency and complete abundance and total safety. It's a relationship of joy and peace and power in him as you are learning from him how to walk with God day in and day out. He says, then walk worthy. Now in Greek, the important words or the words that are emphasized are often put at the front of a sentence. And that happens here. Paul literally says, if you translate the, the, just the Greek word order, he says, I beg you, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, in a manner worthy, walk the calling with which you were called. And so that, that word, I beg, that's, the, that's right there at the front. I beg, therefore. It's, it's also translated as I urge or I exhort. Those are not words that, uh, we don't use the word exhort very much in contemporary English, and, and, and urge is kind of a weak, uh, a weak sort of word, a verb in our language. Beg is, 
is even kind of losing its force. But, but basically, th this word beg or urge is a, is a verb form of the noun that Jesus uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16, when he calls him the helper, the helper. And the word literally means one who is called alongside to assist you. And so Paul's saying, I am called alongside of you to assist you in this enterprise which God has laid at your feet of walking worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Sometimes that word is translated as a counselor. Sometimes that word is translated even as an advocate. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm going to come alongside you, and I'm going to work with you, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you walk in a manner that is fitting for one whose life is so richly resourced and backed by Almighty God and by His power. And what does that life look like? What does it mean to walk worthy of all those privileges? Well, he, he unfolds that a little bit in this next chapter, and, and, and he unfolds it actually over the whole chapter, chapter 4. The first thing he says, though, is that you're deeply humble. Walk deeply humble. The word is actually lowliness of mind. Have lowliness of mind. In other words, you aren't obsessed with thoughts about yourself or about comparing yourself to others or about trying to figure out how to get your way, or with worrying about how to prevent what you are afraid of happening from happening, or trying to keep something good from happening to someone that you don't like and don't think deserves it. Um, just don't, you just let go of yourself. You're not worried about yourself. C.S. Lewis said, and I think he's absolutely perfect, he said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself Humility is thinking of yourself less. Is that you just forget about yourself. You actually die to yourself. So you're not worried about yourself. It's the, the, for, the thing that's in the forefront of your mind is not me, 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 what I need, what's going to happen to me. You just don't worry about it. Why? Because God has promised to care for you. You see, the, the, the Christian life only works if it's actually resourced by God. Otherwise, it'll kill you. And people who try and live the Christian life without the power of God flowing into their lives are miserable people. Because they're, they're saying, I'm not trying to defend myself, I'm not trying to take care of myself, but I'm actually really totally obsessed with myself, and I'm trying to pretend that what's, not, what's happening is not happening, and I'm just a bundle of anxiety and anger and nerves and everything else. If you don't know the power of God by your experience, you're just going to be, you're going to have a hard time. But if you know that power and you know that love by experience, then you say, well, I don't need to worry about myself. Jesus is going to take care of me. He's always taking care of me and he always will. So I don't need to be angry. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be worried. All those things Jesus tells you in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't need to be. You can actually live that way. Why? Because God is there and he's caring for you. The second thing he says is this is also a life where the, the person who's living it is gentle. You're gentle when you're walking this way. Um, you're, you're walking in a way of tremendous privilege being made manifest to the world. We talked today about all the people that have privilege. This group has privilege and that group has privilege. Christian, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are the most privileged person in the world. It is a tremendous privilege to be resourced, to have your life backed by the emperor of the universe. 
That's, you can't get any more privileged than that. You are king's children. You are princes and princesses. And one day you will reign together with Christ. So you're, you're pretty privileged. Even if you're poor, even if you're not very smart, even if you're not very good looking like me, you're privileged. We're all privileged here. And, and Jesus says, in, or Paul says here, privileged people are gentle people. Why? Well, gentleness isn't weakness. We think of gentleness sometimes when we think of weakness. Gentleness is strength under perfect control. Usually when we're not gentle, it's when we think we have to hurt people for their own good or for our good. It's, you know, it happens when we're not gentle when we're irritated with them because of their problems. And maybe you're in a relationship with them in such a way that their problems are also your problems because whenever they don't do what they're supposed to do, then you've got a problem. And, and so you're, you're, you're not ready to be gentle. You, you feel, I, I can't be gentle with this person. I've got to be mean to them. Well, no, you really don't. You see, gentleness takes into account that God is present and God can be counted on to be at work both in me and in the person that's causing my problems. Gentleness is the outcome when you realize that when you meet with a person, you never meet with them one-on-one. You always meet with another person in the presence of Christ. Therefore, what matters isn't what I want or what the other person wants, but what Christ is doing with both of us and in both of us in that moment. So I can give up on trying to manage you because Christ is managing you. And actually, the most powerful thing I can do for you to change you where you need to be changed is to just pray to Christ about you and for you. And you can do the same for me. We we vastly overestimate the ability of our words and the force of our emotional wants and desires and threats and everything else. We vastly overestimate the ability of that to accomplish anything lasting and good. It'll accomplish a lot of evil. But when Christ comes in and, and you start praying for the person in a posture of love, in a posture and from a, a place of total sufficiency, and you say, you know, what, what needs to happen in this person's life? Lord, you're smarter than me. W- would you do that? Would you, would you make that happen? And so I don't need to, if you need to be changed, I don't need to tell you about all the ways you need to change. And you don't need to worry about that for me either. Therefore, I can be gentle with you, and you can be gentle with me. And when I do, on occasion, need to speak to you about something that's difficult, sensitive, perhaps painful, I'm able to do it from a place of love and from a a desire for your good and from a a freedom uh, from an orientation towards rejection or attack. And if you're really walking with Jesus, then you in humility can hear me from a a posture of non-reactive confidence in God. Not only that, I will be patient. That's the next thing, patient, macrothuma, long-tempered. Because I recognize that God's timing for you and my preferred timing for you might just be two different things. And so, because you're secure in the Lord's love and acceptance, and you're confident that Jesus is right here with us while we're talking to one another, and because your main goal in life is to be transformed into Christ's likeness, you're, you're eager to deal with the issues that, you, that uh, you have that are keeping you from becoming like Jesus Christ, and so am I. 
You know, I, I want to be the kind of person that can be told when I've done wrong and just be told and go, you're right, I did something wrong. I apologize. What do we need to do to make it right? And I don't have to get angry and defensive. I don't have to go, well, I only did that because you did that. You know how, how people are? I, I could just say, you know what? My greatest goal is to be like Christ. And you came to me and showed me a blind spot. And, and it's a little bit, it may even sting a little bit. I can't believe I did that. I need to go and make that right with an, another person or with you or whatever. Because my goal is to be the kind of person that doesn't do that. And that's what I want more than anything. So you just helped me. There's a, a wonder, I think it's in Proverbs, it says, let a wise man rebuke me or correct me. It is oil to my head. It, you've done me a favor. But, but it's easier to appropriate that favor if I don't perceive that you're coming to me trying to bury me or hurt me or get one over on me or get power over me or get control of a situation that I'm involved in. If you're coming to me because you love me and you want my best, I can hear that. I know that. And, and you know the same if I'm coming to you that way. And that's how we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to be. I am non-reactive then because I have confidence in God. Not only that, I'll be patient and I'll be secure. And you can talk to me and I can talk to you. And, and, and the thing that will help this more than anything else is if, uh, is if the place where you and I are meeting to talk about these things, uh, the, the situation, the, the ethos, the organization, whatever you want to call it, is a safe place. It's a place to hear and process the truth about myself. And it's okay. I'll know I still belong while I'm processing that truth about myself. I want a loving and supportive environment in which I can receive help to change. And that's what I want for you too. But change usually takes time, doesn't it? People very, very, don't change immediately very often. And often while people are in the process of change, the things that everybody involved agrees actually need to change will keep popping up from time to time because we have what Paul calls the motions of sin in our members. We've got a long habituation towards sin and towards ways of being that are not good and healthy and God-honoring. And, and while we're working on that, sometimes it's going to come out. It's going to pop up. And Paul says, that calls for patience and for bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another, that, that word bearing, that refers to carrying a load, right? And sometimes when people are, let's just call them maladaptive behaviors, we could just call them sins. Sometimes when people have sins that are impacting you, it is, it's almost like a load that you're carrying being around them, isn't it? Being with you, you're like, oh, here it comes again. And, and, and Paul says, bear, with, bear that load. Bear with one another in love. People need to know that they are not on probation. That they are going to be, they're not going to be loved conditionally. And that we will be patient with them so long as they do seem to really sincerely desire to change. You say to yourself, well, you know, how do I, how do I know that? Well, you, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. That's why it calls for patience and bearing with one another in love. But if over time we see that the change isn't happening, then, then we can say, okay, do you really sincerely desire to change? And, and you think to yourself, okay, are, is the relationship done then? Can I just throw them overboard then? No, no, no. So 
if, if it looks like, hey, you don't really desire to change, let's take a step deeper with you and, and let's help you discover what you really do desire. And let's get you to face that fact that there are other desires that are really ruling your life. And, and then I'm going to give you the freedom and the space to decide what to do with that fact about yourself. We just help them answer the question. What is it that I actually most desire in life? If it isn't the blessed life in the kingdom of God where I'm learning from Jesus how to live my life as he would live it if he were in my place. What is it that's actually ruling my life? What are the desires? What's my, to go back a few sermons, what's my vision of the kingdom that I'm after? And maybe they go, you know what? It really is dumb to desire the approval of people or the accumulation of money or a certain position or job or something else, more than an interactive life together with God. I'm going to change my priorities, and I'm going to ask your help in doing so. And maybe they say, you know what? A life with God just really isn't my priority right now. And then you have a clarity, and that's a very helpful clarity. Everybody agrees then what's going on. You, you thought you were coming here to be made more like Jesus, but you really don't want that as much as you want other things. And Go, go pursue those other things. And if you ever change your mind, come back. Because this place is going to be about helping you, once you have that desire in place, helping you to realize in your life what it is you're desiring. So that ability, that ability to say, now, just what, what exactly is it that you're after here? Why did you come to church? What are you hoping to gain? What are you hoping to receive by coming to the, this church what is it that you want? And to get a clear, honest answer about that question from each of us that we've thought about. It's an answer that, that each of us can own. And we can each say with perfect clarity, yes, this is why I came here. That then is the basis, says Paul, for unity. It's the basis for unity because the church only has one mission. The church only has one purpose. The church only has one goal. We are a school of life that seeks to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ and then teaches them how to walk with him in the kingdom and how to learn how to be like him for the rest of their lives until that day they pass from this world into the world that is to come, into eternity. That's all. That's why we're here. That's our, number, that's our goal. In the, old, the old Presbyterians uh, said in their constitutional documents in their book of order, they, the question was, what is the great ends of the church? And the answer was to gather and perfect the saints of God. Gather and perfect the saints. What do you, what's the church for? To gather and perfect the saints. Now, that's not the understanding that we're ever going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but that we are undergoing the process of becoming more like Jesus, our perfect example. So gather and perfect the saints. That's what we're about. We're a school of life. That's it. That's the only reason that God has given for the church to exist. And the minute we deviate from God's stated purpose for the church, the church slowly, quietly, inexorably starts to die. It starts to get riven with conflict because all of a sudden it's like, well, I was here, I'm here because I want something for my kids and you're not providing what I think I need for my kids and I'm mad about that. 
we're here to teach all of you how to become like Jesus. Well, I don't want that for myself. I just want something for my kids. You know, stop bugging me about this Jesus stuff and fix my kids. We'll do our best. But you're here too. And you're supposed to be here to become like Jesus. Well, I'm here to make sales contacts for my business. No, you're not. You're here to be like Jesus. Well, I, I, I'm here because my life is hard and, and I want somebody to speak comfortable words to me and tell me that everything's going to be okay. Are you in Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Well, no, not really. Then I don't have any comfortable words for you. You're here to become like Jesus. That's it. And if a church deviates from that, God just shuts it down. He gives a lot of time. There's always a, a long, slow decline. But eventually God says, that's enough. I'm writing Ichabod, no glory, over the door, just like I did in my temple in Ezekiel's day, and the glory's going to depart. And you guys can sit here and have your little club until it runs out of money and it runs out of people, and then we'll, we'll do, figure out what to do with the building. That's, that's scary, folks, but that's the truth. And when we're all clear on why we're here and, and we're all committed personally to that goal of becoming Christ-like ourselves and of helping others to do as much as we can, then we have unity. A unity of purpose, then, which reflects a deeper unity in Christ that we're going to learn about next week because then Paul starts talking about God's favorite number. Out of this. He talks about he talks about being patient, kind, and gentle, and bearing with one another so that you have unity because why? Because of the nature of God and, and of what he's trying to accomplish. And it has to do with his favorite number. We'll talk about that next week. Now, I want to bring that about here at Tabernacle. The elders want to bring that about here at Tabernacle. That we would have gentle, kind, patient forbearing, mutual forbearing, loving relationships with one another as we are helping one another towards the goal of becoming like Jesus Christ. And if that's going to happen here, we're going to have to learn a different way of dealing with each other than the way that we learn out in the world. You see, all of our relationships in the world, even our closest ones, are marked by two things, sinfully. They're marked by attack and withdrawal. All of your relationships in the world, you, you meet somebody and the first thing you do is start sizing them up. Is this person okay? Are they going to attack me? Are they going to withdraw from me? Should I withdraw from them because I think they're going to attack me? I'm going to keep my guard up and, and watch them and be careful. Husbands and wives do this to each other. Attack and withdraw. Parents and children do this to each other. Friends do this to each other. And we can attack and withdraw at the same time. We can attack another person, for instance, verbally or in some other way while withdrawing from them. And we can subtly attack another person by withdrawing from them, giving them the cold shoulder, for instance, and refusing to speak to them when they enter a room. You know, there's a wonderful secular book. It's a business book, actually. It's called Crucial Conversations. And they talk about this. They use different terms. They say, you know, so many of the relationships in the business world and in the, corporate, in the corporate world are marked by silence and violence, attack and withdrawal. Maybe the violence is just verbal. Maybe it's just emotional. 
but they're marked by silence and violence. It's attack and withdrawal. So even the world understands this. And it seems to be a general truism that some cultures in our world are oriented towards managing conflict by attacking, and others manage conflict by withdrawing and then finding a more subtle way to attack from a distance. And, and it was, there was a professor of, of sociology who came and spoke to us at seminary one time as a guest lecturer, and he talked about this, and it was very fascinating to me. It's been one of the most useful things that I, I've ever learned to help me understand people and the way people are and why they do the things that they do. See, the farther north your ancestors are from, the less likely it's going to be that you have any comfort with open conflict. And the farther south your ancestors come from, the more likely that you are to have some comfort or some willingness to do conflict openly. And, and you really see that, for instance, in places like St. Louis, where I was born, where a century ago you had lots of Italians from the nice warm sunny south and then lots of northern Germans from the cold country come together and try and live literally right next to each other in St. Louis. And you can see just in the life of that city as you watch people going about their businesses, driving in traffic, you can see those two different patterns of, of managing conflict. And, and the Italians are, I keep hearing about this Italian temper, right? Ah, da, 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 this is what I do, I'm, you know, I'm angry. Well, you know, that works in, in ancient times if you're in a nice warm place like Sicily. Because if you get mad at all the people in the house, you just go outside and find some place in this paradise. It's not too cold. It's not, maybe it's a little warm, so you find a shade tree to sit under. But you're, you're fine. But if you're a Viking from Norway and you get mad at somebody in the middle of winter and you storm out of the yurt, well, you're just dead, right? You're going to get eaten by a polar bear. So we have to sit here and pretend we're not mad at each other. And the way I manage my conflict is by talking to you about her, and then I hope you're going to deal with her, and, then she, and, and, and this is how we do conflict. We just don't talk to each other. Attack and withdrawal. And those things persist in cultures and in families over the centuries. My family is a big withdrawing family, and, uh, and, and it's created all kinds of interesting things in my life. So by personality and by family culture and by ethnic culture and by experience, you're going to have some sort of preference for managing conflict that's going to involve attack or withdrawal. And you're going to think that your way of doing things is the best way. And then Jesus comes along and says, no. Actually, both ways are perversions of my way, the kingdom way. In the kingdom, says Jesus, we don't attack one another. We don't withdraw from one another. We stand still in love with the help of God, asking God to bless the person, and if possible, asking God to use us to impart the blessing. And in that posture where we stand in love and we don't attack and we don't withdraw, in that posture, our primary concern is not ourselves, it's not our rights, it's not our dignity. We've entrusted all of that to God. Our concern is the well-being of the other person as God defines that well-being. It's to say, I know you're up in my face right now and insanely angry at me and maybe even hate me. You may even want to strike me on the right cheek but I'm going to stand still. And if you hit me on the left one again, I'm still going to stand still. And I'm going to pray for you. 
and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to seek to bless you, and I'm going to ask God to use me to do that. I'm going to speak the, the truth to you in love. I'm going to do whatever is in my power to, to accomplish the genuine good in your life, even if it kills me. And that's exactly what the early Christians did. Now, if you can get away and you need to get away, get away. But if you can't get away, then you say, God, you brought me here. I'm standing here. I can't get away. They might kill me. Okay, then let me love them while they're killing me. Which is exactly, loved ones, how the early church lived and how the early church died. And they were a wonder to their pagan neighbors. And so we ought to be able to do this. If, if Jesus says, hey, we can do this with our enemies, people that, that want to ride up on motorcycles and come in with 50 caliber machine guns and slaughter you know, a bunch of us in the church, we, if we're supposed to be able to do that for our enemies, how much more should I be able to do it with you and you to be able to do it with me? To my knowledge, nobody in here has a 50 caliber machine gun wanting to kill me, right? Maybe Ron does, I don't know. But that's not what we're, so, so if, if, if we can love our enemies and pray for those who are persecuting us, how much more ought we be able to love each other and help each other grow up in Christ? The attackers tend to use truth as a weapon. The withdrawers tend to sweep the truth under the carpet. In the kingdom, we speak the truth in love to one another. And we humbly accept correction. And we ask forgiveness of one another when we sin against each other. And if a brother or sister in Christ asks you for forgiveness, guess what? You have to forgive them. Jesus taught that very clearly. Now, there are a whole bunch of things that that does and doesn't mean, forgiving somebody. And I plan on exploring that with you later. But you understand things well enough to begin putting them into practice. So let me just close by redirecting your attention to a passage of Scripture that is just so central to giving us a vision of this life together in the kingdom. And it was our call to worship. It's in Colossians chapter 3. It's one of these like central texts that, that God has given us to say, look, guys, this is how you live together in Christ. John, uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There you are. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to be holy, and I know that I'm beloved of God because He's chosen me. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. Sometimes I'm going to be a burden on you. Sometimes you're going to be a burden on me. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to shoulder that burden, and I'm going to roll it right onto Christ's strong shoulders. And Christ and I will carry your burden together. And you can do the same with me, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love. And what is love? Love is a desire for the other person's well-being as God has defined it and a willingness to do whatever is in your power 
to accomplish their well-being. Put on that. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Why be thankful? Because you've got everything you need. Everything is going to be yours one day. Whatever you give up now will be paid back to you double, triple, poured out into your lap. Maybe in this world, maybe in the world to come. You're going to be fine. So you can be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's how a Christian marriage should run. That's, a, that's Christian parenting right there. That's how a Christian school or a Christian organization should be. And above all, that is how a church should be. You see, one of the things that, once again, we've lost sight of is taught to us by Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. What Jesus says in this passage is that the success of Christ's worldwide revolution depends on us treating each other this way. This is, what, this is what God has promised will cause the world to know who Jesus is. He says this in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, he says Jesus answered him, I have, well, that's 18, sorry, John 17. I do not ask for these only, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know why the world doesn't believe Jesus? Because we're not what we're supposed to be. It's not about techniques for evangelizing. It's not about money spent on programs. It's not about it's not about flashy advertising and marketing campaigns. The reason the world doesn't believe that Jesus was sent by God to save the world is because you and I are not one, as God and Jesus are one. That's it. And the reason we're not one is because we haven't decided that's what we're supposed to do. We haven't decided that's what we're supposed to be. I want you to know that we are forming a clear expectation at Tabernacle that we would begin to move towards this in a deliberate way, taking deliberate steps to this becoming the kind of place where when people look at us, they will say, there is a God, and he sent his son Jesus, and I can see it in these people and the way they love each other. And I think it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. There is not an explanation for it in the natural world. It has to come from God. It has to be something from on high, and I want a piece of that 
and they will come to Jesus Christ in droves when they see us this way. So we're going to form a clear expectation that this is the kind of place we're going to be, and we're going to be self-consciously pursuing a life in which you and I are saying, hey, we're going to become more like Christ, more and more and more like Christ. And, and that part of that living, part of living that out is how we treat each other. And part of living that out is disrupting old patterns and saying, you know what, that's not how we are anymore. That's not how we're supposed to be. And putting new patterns into place that bring life and goodness. I know that I've used this before, but I'm going to use it again because it's been a while. It's from John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted. And the title is The Man Who Never Changed. And he writes this, and this, with this we'll close. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. His was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint, and he carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused to reflect and then replied without smiling, yes. Well, then tell your face, the deacon said. But so far as anyone knows, Hank's face never did find out about him. Occasionally, Hank's joylessness produced unintended joy for others. There was a period of time when his primary complaints centered around the music in the church. It's too loud, Hank protested, to the staff, the deacons, the ushers, and eventually to the innocent visitors of the church. We finally had to take Hank aside and explain that complaining to complete strangers was not appropriate and he would have to restrict his laments to a circle of intimate friends. And that was the end of it, so we thought. A few weeks later, a secretary buzzed me on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see me. I'm here to check out a complaint, he said. As I tried to figure out who on the staff would have called OSHA over a church problem, he began to talk about decibel levels at airports and rock concerts. Excuse me, I said, are you sure this was someone on the church staff that called? Oh no, he explained, if anyone calls, whether or not they work here, we're obligated to investigate. Suddenly the light dawned. Hank had called OSHA and said, the music at my church is too loud, and they sent a federal agent to check it out. By this time, the rest of the staff had gathered in my office to see the man from OSHA. We don't mean to make light of this, I told him, but nothing like this has ever happened around here before. Don't apologize, he said. You have no idea how much ridicule I've faced around my office since everyone discovered I was going out to bust a church. Sometimes Hank's joylessness ended in comedy, but more often it produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he once might have had for joy or wonder or gratitude atrophied 
He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller each year. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy, and he grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life, yet was not transformed. The church staff did have some expectations. We expected that Hank would affirm certain religious beliefs. We expected that he would attend services, read the Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly, and avoid certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's place. We didn't assume that each year would find him more compassionate, joyful, and a gracious and winsome personality. We didn't anticipate that he was on the way to becoming a source of delight and courtesy who overflowed with rivers of living water, and so we were not shocked when it didn't happen. Indeed, we would have been surprised if it did. Most of us want to be changed, to become more like Christ. But is this happening? According to a Gallup poll, nine of of 10 Americans say they pray daily, and 84 million Americans, almost a third of the population, say they have made a personal commitment to Christ as Savior. But as William Iverson writes, a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If this is real Christianity, the salt of the earth, where is the effect that Jesus spoke of? Because by and large, we do not expect people to experience ongoing transformation. We are not led to question whether perhaps the standard prescriptions for spiritual growth being given in the church are truly adequate to lead people into a transformed way of life. I believe we need to say that this state of affairs is simply not acceptable. It is not God's plan for His community. As C.S. Lewis said in another context, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In fact, Hank's problem is not just that he is failing to change. His problem and the problem of all of us who become far too easily pleased is that we may end up changing in ways that leave us worse off than before. Loved ones, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen.